but they were, it was a tiny little pebble being rolled uphill. And now it's a big ball and it's near the crest of the hill. And you've got as much as by some estimates, a quarter of workers not returning to the hospitality industry. That's massive. Like t- t- take any industry and say 25% of your people are gone. They're going back to school. They're going to live with their family. They're going to under careers. How are you going to adjust for that? And specifically given that the old model of hospitality is, was, well, we'll just get another group of 19 year olds. Restaurants were hit hard by the pandemic. After initial closures, they reopened with reduced capacity and requirements to check vaccine passports and PPE. They pivoted to takeout and delivery. And then we heard of gouging by the third-party delivery apps. Now, as they ramp up again, we hear about trouble hiring people. What's the future of the restaurant industry look like? My name is Mike Von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. My guest today is Corey Mintz, the author of The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them, and What Comes After. Corey is a food writer and former cook who spent a lot of time thinking about how restaurants are changing, and he writes a, an excellent uh, overview of many of the things that we can expect to see changed what's good about the restaurant industry, what needs to be better about the restaurant industry, and how we as individuals can can help influence the direction of that change. It was a really interesting uh, episode. It was a really interesting discussion. I think uh, you'll enjoy it. So let's get straight to it. Hey, Corey, thanks for taking the time today. Of course, it's always my pleasure. Well, I I really enjoyed the book, uh, and uh, and and I think you and I agree on a lot of things. But I thought I'd I'd pull out a couple of themes that I that I think merit discussion. The first one is there's a, there's a common theme from chapter one pretty much through that we we have lots of people in the food system, in restaurants, in food production, and in many places in between that are probably underpaid, undervalued, often exploited. You talk about wage theft in the book. Why does that seem to be systemic in the food system? Why do I think it's specific, this this type of problem in the food system? Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you get a question when you write a story, particularly even from a newspaper audience, when people say, there's always the whataboutism for a variety of topics. And when you talk about labor exploitation in any creative field, people say, well, this happens in film production. This happens in music. This happens in painting and, and, and politics. And, and the answer is, I don't cover those subjects. Uh, I cover <laughs> food. And I have no doubt that you're right. This, I mean, the, <clears throat> the formula of using, taking advantage of young people by exploiting their eagerness to get started in a creative field and getting them to work more than is either, you know, governed by local labor law or is conscionable as, as a, an ethical employer or is sustainable in a way that won't uh, cause them all to burn out and drop out of the industry, which is something we've seen over the last year. I think that's pretty common to all of these areas. Uh, and that's the problem. If I was 
you know, if I wrote about the music industry, I'm sure I would, there'd be a lot of overlap in, in what okay. I was writing about. You, you talk about the, the context for this shock to the, to the restaurant industry. The context is really uh, the, the pandemic, but these issues were an issue before the pandemic. It's not that we've suddenly got a labor shortage. It's maybe that a lot of people figured out that they yeah. could do other things. Is, is, is the pandemic really sort of opening people's eyes? And do you think it will drive a change into how we treat employees, both in restaurants themselves and further up the value chain? I think yes, yes, and maybe to take that apart a bit. I mean, the only, suddenly the public is so much more aware of a variety of issues in the restaurant system, stuff that when I began working on the book, it was, it was my lofty goal to get people to pay attention to, particularly because some of those issues I'd written about and found that people often wouldn't believe they'd say, you better check your math and your sources, Corey. And some of these, some of those issues, whether it's how workers are treated or how the delivery companies treat the restaurants, they've come to the surface. The public's become aware they were all there before. The only issues that are new are the health and safety related issues, you know, uh, the, the, the forced closure of dining rooms and the economic supports that have been necessary and how well those work, uh, as well as the, you know, on the other end of things, the, the vaccines, the, the efficacy of vaccines, the anti-vaxxers harassing restaurants, who is responsible for enforcing. All of those things certainly are new, but all the other stuff, it existed before. Restaurants were struggling with it, uh, but they were. it was a tiny little pebble being rolled uphill. And now it's a big ball, and it's near the crest of the hill. And you've got as much as, by some estimates, a quarter of workers not returning to the hospitality industry. That's massive. Like take any industry and say 25% of your people are gone. They're going back to school. They're going to live with their family. They're going to under careers. How are you going to adjust for that? And specifically given that the old model of hospitality is, was, well, we'll just get another group of 19 year olds, right? We'll, we'll, we'll pull the same con on them. But the good news is that you know, the, the 75% that remains, so many of them are more aware of their rights. They're more willing to stand up and push for the kind of workspaces that they deserve. Not that that's not that that transformation is happening overnight. And yes, to answer your question, diners are more aware of this stuff. So I think they're starting to become part of the conversation. That doesn't mean, you know, it's time to unfurl the mission accomplished banner behind us on the, uh, the aircraft carrier of the pandemic, but the it's like the pieces are all on the chessboard. You know, the main players are there to affect a dramatic change in, in workplace culture. And, and we're going to come back to that because I think you finished the book really eloquently talking about what we can do as individuals, but let's, let's, why don't you highlight a couple of things that, that people might not be aware of that you describe in the book without sort of, taking too much of the wind out of the sails uh, of, of things that people might not know that are happening in kitchens, maybe start in the chef driven restaurant, the, the second chapter in your book. Well, that chapter, it's certainly, it's almost double the length of any other chapter uh, probably because it's, it's the one that draws most on my own 
lived experience. Uh, I mean, every chapter we, we, I try to get personal and, uh, uh, and find really interesting characters to illustrate these scenes. But that's my background, right? I was a cook and I, I, I cooked in from, from uh, lo- relatively low-end, quick-service vegetarian food to high-end Italian. And so, you know, I was witness to these things or I experienced these things. And for example, there's wage theft. And here, here when we talk about wage theft, so we don't sound like some provincial labor board, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about either uh, you, you employ people on a weekly salary like I was, where I was paid uh, at the time, it was $400 a week. And eventually I realized, well, when I divide this by 60, which is the number of hours I actually work, because I work 12 hour days, it's less than the current minimum wage. Or you put them on day rates and it can sound good. Like, oh, $150 a day sounds decent until you, you know, you divide it by 12 or 14 hours as some people work. Or you pay people by the hour and everyone goes, great, now we get paid for every hour we work. But then you should, you know, the cook shows up on their first day at noon and finds that everybody's already in the kitchen. And the second day they show up half an hour early. Everybody's already there. And eventually they realize everybody comes in an hour or two hours early every day. And the boss, you know, when asked about it, says, I don't ask anyone to come in. I don't expect, I don't demand. If people are, you know, so passionate because they want to learn, they want to get ahead, who am I to stop them? So, I mean, that's that's the sort of various mechanisms of wage theft, uh, the, yeah. the forms that it takes. And and people just don't, people just don't think about it, right? They, you know, How would you see it's, that? It's outside, of the, it's outside of the, the sort of frame of reference we have as restaurants. That's this invisible behind the screen kitchen and well, even in it, open kitchens nowadays. Where is it written on the menu? I mean, say you've got this menu that says, oh, our, our, our pork comes from Zinn Farms and it's all, you know, finished on chestnuts and so forth. Where does it, where is it written on the menu that, and by the way, we pay our people less than minimum wage. Uh, because that's the only <laughs> way we can produce the beautiful f- food that we serve you without, if, unless we want to charge you $200 uh, for a meal. So, so I'm going to get back to that that cost thing because I think that that's an important point. One thing that was a real eye opener. I, I I spend a lot of time going to restaurants, thinking about restaurants, and 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 trying to understand how they work. And I remember being at a restaurant uh, with a friend of mine that you know, Bruce McAdams, who you talk about in the in the book. It was once uh, voted the most sustainable restaurant in the world, uh, and we had sort of a a really fancy tasting menu and, and, and it was good. And he and I were, they have an open kitchen and he and I were watching the kitchen and, and they saved on labor by only having two front of house staff who took drink orders and took food orders, but all Mm -hmm. the food was run by the cooks. So you watch someone prepare your meal, then you, then they brought it to you. Uh, And there was this young woman who was working her butt off and, and we frankly thought she was the sous chef. We thought she was running the kitchen that night. When she came to speak to us, uh, we, we had a chat and she was a young woman from Edmonton who was there on a stage and was working for nothing for three <laughs> months, uh, literally for nothing, but was running the kitchen. Uh, and yeah. and that that's a pretty, co- you, you talk about that a little bit in your, uh, in your book. I, it, it was, it was surprising okay. to me. That anecdote was a roller coaster. I got so excited for the the 
the restaurant uh, having the you know the cooks deliver the food and being able to equalize wages that way and then you throw in the person running the kitchen as an unpaid stage yeah <laughs> it was, it was unbelievable on twist yeah but that's that's fairly qual- that that that's fairly common isn't it I think it's more common now in Europe than it is in North America. You know, that was one of the things I, the first things I did when I started the book was try to figure out uh, the difference between my experiences, my reporting experiences, in which is largely based in Canada, and start to talk to as many Americans as I could to find out, well, how do kind of labor standards differ? Because for example, that sort of everybody works off the clock for two hours is not uh, homogeneously the case, but it's fairly common in high-end restaurants. And speaking with Americans, the story I got was, yeah, that's pretty standard in the you know quote-unquote best restaurants in America, but the unpaid staging isn't really and hasn't been for about five or ten years. I think there was a relatively widespread uh, government crackdown on the practice of, okay. of unpaid internships. And they would, but the strange thing is there would be a mix of people saying on one hand, like it's good that sort of the government stepped in and stopped this exploitation on on the downside. It's bad because we don't have the opportunity to operate on the model that Europe's best restaurants do, which is like, let's get two thirds of our staff working for free so we can execute like an army, uh, but pay like a battalion. I probably shouldn't use military metaphors because I don't know the actual size of battalions and platoons but you get what i mean if you if you pay 10 people but you actually have another 20 people on the floor doing the work you can compete at a different level in the restaurant where they have to pay everybody for their work so there's a bit of a resentment in in terms of like well we wish not that we could work for free but we wish we could reach the heights that you can only reach when you've got uh, that many people working for nothing so switching gears a little bit you you also talk in the book uh about some of the exploited farm labor and and almost indentured farm labor in some mm-hmm. areas. Uh, not only we we hear about it, slave labor in 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 the Southeast uh, Asia, harvesting shrimp. But but you you talked about it happening in Florida and in other places in the U.S. that that drive or 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 really support the low cost food that we have. And you talk about it in the context of fast food restaurants, QSRs, forcing, using their market power, there's very few of them, uh, they buy a lot, forcing their market power on the growers who then say, we have market power over the workers and we're going to squeeze workers for uh, to lower cost to, to, to again, feed mm-hmm. a low cost food system. But in that, in that instance, you talked about making a little bit of progress where some organizations managed to put pressure on put pressure on some of those quick service restaurants to induce change uh, and and at least slightly maybe not all the way but improve the working conditions for some of these for some of these farm workers mm-hmm. well that that the the, the the chapters on the chains both fast food and full service were very influenced by something that your colleague Bruce McAdams, said to me one night when we were, we were chatting and he said, the biggest problem in restaurants today is oversaturation. And the saturation is having, happening because of all these, these chains and the constant growth that their corporate structure demands. So 
you know, I really, I really pursued that idea for, for, for all that I could. And, and what I found is that, you know, like Wendy's or Burger King, they're not setting out to uh, uh, hurt agricultural workers. Like it's not like they wake up in the morning and say, how can I take a, a person who's working for so little and make their life even worse? But the pressure they're under is constant growth of units and same sales store growth. Uh, and the way they get there is either, you know, buying up other chains or finding efficiencies to make their product uh, less expensive to produce. And so that's where the pressure comes uh, in agriculture to say, you you know, you, you got to make it cheaper, right? We won't pay more than this price. Uh, and that's where all this horrific, truly horrific exploitation comes from. We're talking specifically about Immokalee, Florida, a place that was once referred to by prosecutors as quote, ground zero for uh, human trafficking in America. And what happened there was the, uh, the workers eventually organized and formed a group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And they did the variety of things that workers do when they organize. Uh, and they eventually realized, uh, according to the people I talked to, after reading uh, an article in a local trade magazine, that um, the buyers for the tomatoes that they pick are all America's biggest chain restaurants. It's, it's, it's Burger King and McDonald's and Subway and Pizza Hut and so on. And so what if instead of trying to get their employers to stop, you know, beating them and trafficking and sexually abusing them, all, what if they went to the buyer and said, we want this to stop? And that's what they did. And they did it in the form of a initially a boycott of Taco Bell that lasted five years until they came to terms with them. And, and by that point had sort of began to codify this into a set of rules, which, which effectively was, if you sign on to this, you agree to pay a penny more a pound for tomatoes, and you will only buy from uh, growers who agree to these rules and don't break these rules. And the rules are basically don't commit these horrible atrocities against workers, or the punishment is the buyers, this sort of buying cabal, will cut you out. So eventually all all of America's biggest chains restaurants signed on. And what that means is if you're a grower and you look the other way while your crew boss is abusing workers and this organization finds you guilty of that, you lose the right to sell tomatoes to Subway, Sodexo, every, Aramark, everybody for 90 days, which is effectively maybe even killing your business. So they found a market-based solution by lobbying diners through because ultimately it began through a protest of getting customers to say, <clears throat> don't buy from Taco Bell for these reasons. And um, the public bought in and then the, all these companies bought in. So it's certainly a sign of hope in terms of the strategy. And I think we've seen other examples of that. There are real examples of the power of pressuring I mean, in many cases, it's been about pressuring. And in some cases, it's been about those companies looking to differentiate themselves in the marketplace, which, you know, you, you alluded to their, their grow same store restaurant sales, grow top line sales, all of those things. It's, it's about differentiating yourself in a very homogenous space. It shows the power of those large buyers if they take an initiative of shifting the market. I would argue, you know... It happened with Immokalee. I would argue that that's what's happened to a large degree with animal welfare improvements. Uh, 
commitments on laying hands and those sorts of things. If you can convince those buyers to make a difference, you can shift enough of the business that you make a difference actually on the farm. Well, level. they're the biggest buyers, right? McDonald's is the largest buyer of beef in, if not the world, at least America. So it's wonderful that the, the 40 seat restaurant near you, everything is as sustainable as it can be. And it's all from local and it's fantastic. I, I salute them, but ultimately they serve, 60 people a night, right? If they do like one and a half seatings on a weekday versus the world's largest consumers, purchasers of tuna, of tomatoes, of beef or whatever it is, when they make a move, it actually affects the market and ultimately creates the infrastructure for growers, for producers, to, for fishers, for harvesters to say, okay, well, if McDonald's wants it done this way, we have to spend the money to update our technology, our hiring, training, whatever it is. And then that becomes an industry standard. So, 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 so there is the 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 opportunity to make change through restaurant. I, I've also argued historically, and I think you allude to this a little bit about when you talk about ask questions in the restaurant that you're eating, no matter how big it is. Where does stuff come from? Where, you know, how how not only how are they paying their people, but where are they buying their their ingredients from, and those sorts of things. Restaurants have a different relationship with us than grocery stores do in that they tell us what they're feeding us and they're influencing our choices. Do restaurants have a role to play in in helping people understand the food system better? And that is the first step in, in making change within the food system? I think so. I mean, restaurants... Food retail and service have this symbiotic relationship, even though they're not partnered, you know? Uh, I mean, for example, you know, all of the impossible Beyond Meat companies, uh, their strategy to gain market share was to partner first with the the David Chang, Mamafuku people, right? The, the trendy, influency restaurants, and then grow wider still with urban chef-driven restaurants and then to get placement in the whatever it was, A&W or Tim Hortons or your sort of your fast food chain. And then the consumers are primed because they have a relationship with restaurants. And then they go to the grocery aisle to launch their product. Uh, that's, I think, a good example of sort of a much more overt trend you mm -hmm. can follow. And on the other end, you've got the sort of more subtle sort of the food trends that the big the big players are sort of watching and say, well, what are the cool chefs doing and how can we take advantage of this in our market? But ultimately, you know, we go in and we have a personal experience in a restaurant, whether it's the, you know, the, just what's printed on the menu. And in some cases, there are restaurateurs who want to put, connect you with their growers on the menu uh, or what became, you know, I think more of a trend around 2005, 2010, telling you where stuff is from in a way that, the supermarket shopping experience can be impersonal. I mean, it can be very personal. Uh, if you're like me and you got married in a grocery store and when you go to that grocery store, you know, you can ask what's good today and pots can say, Oh, this just came, you know, this broccoli just came in. This, this guy grows the best bro broccoli. He does, you know, and he'll tell you, I was just out the other day. I saw it under the tarps. Most people don't have that relationship. Although, even big impersonal grocery stores have people working in them, some of them who actually know about the product. But in general, I think that sort of restaurants are kind of ambassadors for food and they introduce us to uh, 
whether it's the idea of sourcing or just ingredients we've never, you know, we never messed with before. And the story as we go, we try something, go, yeah, honey, have you ever had halloumi before? That was delicious. Where can we buy that and cook for, you know, and whether you ask for the recipe and you realize, well, I can't cook it the way you cooked it at the restaurant because I'm not a professional. Uh, that doesn't matter. It's the idea that, like they introduce us, not just to new flavors, but to the idea of, hey, here's why we get this local pork. Or here's why, you know, the example of the the, the Commonwealth restaurant in San Francisco, where they said, well, here's why there's a cert, uh, an additional charge for beef and lamb dishes, because we're paying for carbon offsets. You know, they have that opportunity for, I don't know, direct marketing sounds like a kind of insidious term, but to, <laughs> I'd say more, more like a canvasser, you know, like who knocks on your door and says, are you, do you care about the issues in this upcoming election? Well, and, and, and to a large degree, restaurants make choices for us, right? In, in that restaurant in San Francisco, they said, we're not going to serve beef and, uh, and, and lamb unless we have carbon offsets and you're going to pay for them. Mm-hmm. In the grocery store, they might have those products, but they'll be next to the regular products. And, and the grocery store says, we're going to give you as much choice as we can. You figure it out. Whereas mm-hmm. the restaurant says, we think these things are important. And we're, and the time you, you figure it out is in choosing which restaurant to go to. Well, I, I think on some level that is above me, the supermarket is very much influencing or attempting to influence your choice, except that they do it through much more subtle ways of, you know, what they call planogramming, like the difference of what's at eye height versus at ankle height and how food is joined together. But no, they're not, it's not like you have a food concierge who says, oh, have you shopped with us before? Or let me show you what's new in aisle six. Yeah, I like that idea though. I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and say- well, Watch yourself, counselor. Yeah. What, what do restaurants look like in the future? Given, given you, you write about the shock that we saw, you know, shutdowns, lockdowns, really a fundamental change, the rise of delivery, all of those things that, that, that were a result of this pandemic. And, and we're still seeing effects of the pandemic. I'm getting out to restaurants a little bit more again. And, and, but, you know, you, you talk about workers now having a better sense of what their rights are. How 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 will the restaurant landscape look different in the next few years? Well, I mean, when you talk about the next few years, it's hard to talk about the next few days. Yeah. I mean, as we're talking, I was supposed to uh, be heading to Toronto uh, in a couple of days. My wife surprised me with an early Christmas present. She had booked a flight for me. We haven't been since we left. Uh, and she booked time for me to visit with family and friends, and I got in touch with restaurants. I was going to try these places out, and I was contacting those restaurateurs, asking them about wages, and I was very excited. And then, you know, as we were reading the news in the last week or so, I just I had to make the decision, given where we're at with Omicron, which is not so much dire so much as it is unknown. You know, yeah. we're in the, 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 known, the, the unknown knowns part of the yeah. Rumsfeld equation. Um, and maybe a month from now, hopefully, we'll say, great, it's, it, you know, I feel more comfortable traveling now. But I canceled the trip. So uh, that's just me and my one decision. I'm sure many other people are in a similar situation with their holiday travel. And, and every restaurateur who, you know, has had the ball 
kicked out from under them so many times in the last couple of years of saying, you can open, you got to close, you can open, you got to close. You know, they've got whiplash. They don't know what's coming. All they know is that they're going to get screwed as always. Um, if they're forced to, forced to close dine-in service, if they're forced to, forced to you know, reduce capacity, whatever it is, it, it, it's for legitimate health concerns. But the issue of they can't plan for the future. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the only things that are certain are the restaurants that were already positioned to switch to uh, off-premise sales exclusively, which is, you know, quick service and mostly immigrant-based restaurants, and I'm using shorthand here because that's the way I kind of group things in the book, but the sort of suburban strip mall restaurant that didn't do much dine-in was mostly takeout. You know, the, just like just like fast food, they were quick to go, okay, masks, plastic shields, takeout only, let's, you know, let's figure it out, versus the full-service urban restaurant where they go, this isn't really our core competency. We can't yeah. just, you know, our... Their food doesn't shove in containers well. Our staff isn't really uh, doesn't want to do this. Um, there's a there's a there's a bigger question mark there. I'd say the other certainty is um, the apps, the app companies, the tech companies, whatever you want to call them, the DoorDashes, the Ubers, so and so. They'll continue to do what they do, which is um, wage a legal uh, political battle against cities, states, and provinces that attempt to legislate them. We've seen in uh, Toronto, New York, San Francisco, wherever, cities that eventually, whether they did it quickly or very late like Toronto, put in temporary caps on the commissions um, of 20%. Some cities, as they've moved to make those permanent, uh, have immediately gotten a legal response from you know these companies, which is we're we're, we're suing you, New York. Uh, it's yeah. our right to uh, to charge uh, whatever we want to these companies, and at the same time, they're 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 bringing their legal battle to rearrange our labor labor laws uh, everywhere. You know, and their argument is like, oh, those labor laws were written a hundred years ago. They don't they don't make sense for our modern uh, uh, utopian business plan, which is uh, effectively. Uh, the same plan a you know a vulture has for a, a wounded uh, bison. Um, so I think that's certain. Like we'll continue to see more of that. What's uncertain is in the sort of urban chefy restaurant how the current I don't want to say power struggle, but I think shift is going to play out. I think I've already been. I would say I've been quite startled to see one particular aspect that is shaken out, not homogeneously, but. I've seen the redistribution of tips happen in a pretty widespread way. At least this is anecdotal evidence and not based on a study. But every time I ask someone about wages, you know, in addition to the base wage that they tell me about, they tell me, well, we also do a, you know, uh, the way we're splitting tips now is more of like a 70-30 or a 60-40 with the front and the back of house, which is miles away from the 95-5 split. That, that there used to be, which, you know, had everything to do with the, 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 the ability in some of those restaurants for the servers to be earning double what the cooks were making. And, you know, the reasons for that are pretty plain. Um, these restaurants weren't going to bring their kitchen staff back for $15 an hour. Um, and the only way to sort of bring them close to something that's a livable wage in a city like Toronto 
or Kitchener or Guelph or anywhere is to start to, you know, tweak the dials uh, on the, the way tips are divided. That isn't to say that they're doing away with tips, although, you know, every day I, I'm not every day, but I'm hearing more and more from restaurateurs who are ready to make that switch. It's not going to happen overnight uh, and not everybody's going to do that. But um, the, the, just the redistribution, the renegotiation is a big deal. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I've, I've done some work on tipping and, and we could, you and I could get down a, a, a dangerous rabbit hole there. So we won't spend a bunch of time. I, I think there's a couple of things. Restaurants like tips because they don't pay payroll taxes on that portion of someone's income. So it not only saves them paying that amount, but it also saves them paying the incremental in Canada, EI and CPP, but Payroll taxes are, are are similar in the U.S., sure. but I also have on my screen open here a, a, a piece of work that I'm looking that I'm working on, uh, or I was working on before we we got on the line. Here is is we as consumers don't care that much about like we, we're not there. There is a small group, usually middle aged white men in suits, who like Ooh. the power dynamic over largely female servers. Uh, who like tipping, but we looked at pre-COVID 10 restaurants that switched from tipping to no tipping and looked at their Yelp and TripAdvisor reviews. And both quantitatively and qualitatively, there was no difference in mm-hmm. average review. Now, there are clear issues with how those platforms collect reviews, no difference in average review, no difference in the variability of a review. It's not like we got more polarized and no increased mention of tipping in, in the comments. So this is about keeping and attracting staff uh, to a large degree, isn't it? Yeah, it's about a variety of things. And I just wanted to point out, Professor, that I believe you were the one who said you weren't going to get dragged into talking about tipping. And yet here you are dragging <laughs> streaming. Uh, and if you insist, yeah, it's, you know, when you when you talk to restaurateurs about this, many will tell you, as many have told me over the years, oh, I hate tipping for all the reasons we all know, but here's why I'm not going to get rid of it. It is uh, one uh, I have to raise prices uh, in order to account for uh, raising wages, and I'm the sticker shock. Uh, it, I'm worried it's going to scare off customers. And 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 you, despite what you, you just told me, I you know I remember reading the abstract for another study by uh, Michael Lynn from Cornell, who's who's a big uh, tipping ac- academic, uh, academic, and um, one of his studies w- found that just the higher prices for a non-tipping restaurant resulted in more negative online reviews. Not that the reviews cited the tipping issue, but just higher prices resulted, uh, affected the sort of temperature of the reviews. Um, But the the biggest issue is for people is usually uh, I'll lose my best people. They'll go across the street to, they used to say they'll go across the street to Buka where they can make 500 uh, on a Saturday, Friday, Saturday night, no problem. Um, you know, that math has changed partly because uh, the, the restaurants have had so many starts and stops with being able to seat diners that there's no, pro- like, it, we're so far away from getting to the level of uh, vaccinated population. I don't know when any server can reliably say, 
oh yeah, all summer long, I'm going to be, you know, serving packed rooms every Friday and Saturday night. Who knows? So there's definitely motivation there to renegotiate. And then you've got this restructuring of the tips, uh, meaning, well, apparently, you know, you can still do well, but you can't walk away with the lion's share. You know, the, the ridiculousness of it is if you've got, for example, like a few years ago, when you sort of asked people what they were paying and what, what people were walking away with, you'd, you'd hear sort of like, well, the cooks make about $15 an hour and the servers make about 12, 50 or whatever. But then with tips, they probably make closer to 30 an hour. So ultimately there's $45 an hour floating around in the air in wages, which if you just divide it in two, you've got enough to pay both groups a livable wage. So yep. it's never made any sense where you go like, well, but it's the custom of the land. Let's let this one group uh, take the majority of it. And the other group, I, I guess I'll just keep complaining online about how I can't find anybody to work from anymore. And I can't figure out why. Yeah. So th- 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 I promised I wouldn't go too deep. I have a million more questions, but we'll you leave swore. it for another conversation. Corey. I swore. So so my, my last question is, is, again, getting to the big picture. Uh, you talked earlier that we probably have too many restaurants, uh, or we at least did pre-pandemic. I'm not sure. We, we still don't know if that's going to continue to be true. We still have too many restaurants, whether it's 500 pre-pandemic or 600 now per diner. It's, it's more than enough. Okay. But we also talked about we need to do better at paying people, particularly in the kitchen. Uh, we probably need to continue to do better in paying people further up the value chain, whether they're individual farmers or farm workers. There are probably jobs. There was just a almost a strike uh, at the Cargill meatpacking plant south of Calgary as well. Mm-hmm. Wages are, are going to go up there. So so throughout the we're, we're seeing wages go up. Uh, we're 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 probably making production changes from a sustainability perspective. All of these things mean prices are going to go up. Are we going to eat in restaurants less because food prices and restaurant prices specifically are going to go up? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, uh, I think any, I think economists will probably argue that the increase in the cost of goods results in in a reduction uh, of consumption. But if, if they're at the same rate, then what is it? What impact does it have? I mean, does, is, is the, the good news is, and, and if you remember, but to quote Marlowe Stanfield, who said the price of the brick is going up. But when Marlowe said it, he was just being greedy. He had the control of distribution. And he was able to say, I'm just going to charge more so I can make more money myself. The good news here is the price is going up. It's going up across the board, but it's not going up because your local restaurant is greedy and they're trying to say, oh, I hate my customers. I want to put my hands in their pocket. They're saying my labor costs are going up and not just my labor costs. My utility bills are going up. The fuel bills are going up. The price of beef and chicken and oil for the deep, the oil for the deep fried fire is up 21 percent, you know, and the cost of imported goods, anything that's got to come in by a ship. You may see a a small increase at the supermarket, but as restaurateurs will tell you, wholesalers, it's partly because wholesalers are subsidizing your nominal increase by passing the whole increase onto restaurateurs. That double O flour that they have to get from Italy 
is now five times more expensive. So there's all kinds of prices, there's all kinds of costs across the board that are resulting in owners having to do what so many say to me they should have been doing the last five years. You know, they have not been increasing menu prices to keep to keep pace with the cost of inflation, let alone the other increased costs, including the need to actually take care of their staff so that there isn't an exodus of talent from the industry, which is what ended up happening. So they're going to have to play catch up. And it may be that uh, rather than everybody increasing costs 30 percent this year that we're likely to see over the next three or four years, you know what, we're all going to keep increasing menu prices 4% per year. And I'm sure the big restaurant groups will try to, as they do, sort of tweak the menu by saying, well, we're just going to move this unit here, this unit here. We'll keep this menu price static because we don't want to shock the system too much. But ultimately, they know they got to keep raising that volume knob up. Yep. And, and, and I would tend to agree. I think, I think we'll still go to restaurants. I think there'll probably be different restaurants that we go to. Uh, I, I think it'll matter more to us. Uh, I mean, you talk about the immigrant restaurant, the local restaurant. I think those we will continue to go to. Maybe a little, maybe a little less the generic, generic chain restaurant where where it was mostly about convenience. We might not be willing to spend that premium on convenience, but but we will be able to spend it on on experience. And so I think it means that the restaurants who stick around need to do a good job of delivering not only on the food, maybe on a, maybe on a more limited menu with a few fewer people in the, uh, in, in the kitchen and on the floor, but, but also the, the entire experience in the restaurant. It's not just about the food. No, no. And, and, you know, everyone has their own priorities, whether it is you know, deliciousness or service, or as you say, the convenience of that, you know, that chain restaurant that always has parking. Uh, yeah. But restaurants have always been a luxury. And it's just that they've been seen as almost a utility, which further feeds into that sort of poisonous axiom of the customer is always right. But if, if you could afford the $10 thing, and you really like that thing, you can afford it for $12, because you already yeah. have the privilege of affording that luxury. So those who could afford to be part of the dining class, you can afford to pay a little bit more. I don't think it's going to be a, uh, I don't think customers are going to say, that's it, I'm eating at home from now on. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Last question. You, you talk at the end of the book about what we can do as individual diners uh, to to support restaurants and to affect change in restaurants and in the food system uh, as, as individuals. What, what should we be doing and thinking about to, to, to get and support the kinds of things we want to see? Yeah, I think it starts with, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff you can do little and small. And I tried to end each chapter on something, something practical, but I think when we look at sort of the, the target audience of like, hey, these these actual chef-driven restaurants, which is what most of us pay so much attention to, and we're trying to be supportive of better business practices, but it's an opaque system, right? Like you can't go to the restaurant website and say, what do you pay? How do you divide tips? Um, does the boss yell at you? Uh, but you can do the opposite. 
you can, when you hear about a restaurant, and we're hearing about them these days because, you know, for the past six months, we've been inundated with this news story of uh, restaurants can't find workers. And some of those news stories have given a megaphone to those handful of fast food operators who've gone, the young people are lazy, nobody wants to work anymore. Um, but then amidst that, you've got these stories of, you know, local restaurant has no trouble, is flooded with resumes. The reason? They pay good wages. Who would have known? They have HR <laughs> policies. They pay They pay benefits. So, you know, I wasn't surprised when I reached out to all the people that I profiled in the book who are running their restaurants differently, whether it's through profit sharing or open book management or whatever it is. And they all said, yeah, we're having no staffing problems. We're, all our people are back. They're happy to be here. Uh, there was no sh- shock to that. What we can do as diners is when we read that story of, oh, there's this restaurant that's doing things a little differently. And as a result, their people are happy. So put that at the top of that list that you all keep. You know, we've all got that list. Of, Here's a place I want to try, right? So after the place that was featured on this just hot opening or your friends are all talking about, uh, which ultimately is, you know, was placed in our social media feeds by Paola Freebie Media Dinners. Put at the top of that list that restaurant and then go to that restaurant and hopefully it's a good experience. I mean, in general, I find that no one chooses to buck the system and and go against the industry standards and not also serve amazing food. So yeah. when you go to that restaurant and when you're there, you know, you can have that conversation. Of, you, you don't have to feel awkward because, you know, they've already had this conversation publicly. Oh, yeah. How are you able to pay people well? That's really cool. That's the place to start the journey and say, so, you know, you treat people well. I think it's, I feel better about this experience. Um, where do you eat? What do you recommend? And, you know, while that, the owner of that restaurant is not going to go on their Instagram feed and badmouth other people for being terrible employers. But if you ask them, like, who do you, who else do you know who's an ethical employer? They're going to tell you the names of their friends who are decent people. So sort of a, a nice version of follow the money. I think that's, you know, it seems like a tall order, but just changing our reasons for going out to eat in the first place and then kind of reverse engineering, like, well, maybe I can find other places that have good values. And when you do that and you have these conversations in the restaurant, I think there's a future where if you remember around 2005, 2008, you started to see on the menu, here's where our lettuce comes from. Here's where our pork comes from. I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to think that in a few years, if we push this boulder up the hill, and say, this is a conversation we care about. I'm not going to say that the menu should say, here's what our starting wage is for new hires. And after three months, you know, if they buy in for this pet, but you know what? They can include uh, promises like we pay a living wage according to this jurisdiction. They can say, here's how the tip is divided. You can start to get some transparency about things that were always hidden and I think matter now to customers. And, and, and something that really struck me that I thought was good advice is there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's nothing wrong with asking, where is this food from? Or how many people get a share of the tip? I ask that all the time in restaurants. How do you split tips? Uh, and, and people aren't offended. People are yeah. often keen to tell you the story and, 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 and are proud of where they work. So I think ask questions, yeah, spend your money. Don't be afraid to be asked questions. I think we have been taught that it's rude to ask about money, but you know, I may, maybe try to think about it in terms of, you know, when you go to ask a bus driver something, they're driving the bus, right? And what do they say? They say behind the white line, you can ask me anything you want, but you got to get behind the white line, you know, like respect the boundaries of this person's 
professional uh, uh, position, right? I mean, they're, they have all these other things. If you're aware of like, all right, you're trying to serve a bunch of tables. Now's not the time for me to talk to you. But you know what? At the end of the night, when you came around, you said, how was it? Maybe that's the time to have this quick conversation. So just, we should all take a step behind the white line and then ask politely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Corey. Uh, I, I think I could talk to you about this for for hours, but I promised right, I wouldn't take going. too long. And, uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, folks, if you uh, are interested in restaurants, if you're interested in the food system, we talked, we touched on just some of the very basics here. Corey covers things like delivery and delivery apps, talks about grocery stores and how the, the line between grocery stores and restaurants was at least blurring beforehand. It's, it's, it's a worthwhile read. This really just gives you an introductory flavor. I, I think you should, uh, should get out and take a look at it. Corey, thanks for taking the time and uh, looking forward to talking again soon. This was delightful. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We very much appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you just discovered Food Focus, you can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review. It helps others find us. Before we go, I want to thank my producer, Zach, for his hard work in making each episode sound good and for his original music that helps us transition. He does the hard work and we get to have all of the fun. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks.